We're pretty um, complex people, aren't we, generally? I'm not sure if you're one of those people that likes to try and figure out a little bit more about yourself, so you sit down and do one of those, you know, maybe an online personality quiz or, um, you know, what Myers-Briggs or one of those types of things. One of the big fad things at the moment is anagrams. Um, they tell you what number you are. I, I, I feel really conflicted about myself because on one hand I think, ooh, I wonder what I am. And I do it. And I go, oh, that's kind of right. I can see some things about it. But I'm a bit more complex than just those little three paragraphs that tell me about who I am. Um, maybe you feel like that yourself. Um, so, for example, I like technology, but I prefer writing with a pencil in a notebook. Um, I like finding new apps for my phone. If you've got a smartphone, dumb phone, what do they call them? Um, but they annoy me, so I put them on there and look at them, and then I think, oh, that's annoying, and I take it off again. Um, we're complex people. Uh, it's the way that we, we operate sometimes. I, I like preaching from an iPad, but I often bring paper notes with me because there are things that I like seeing on paper. Um, but one of the things that annoy me about apps sometimes are that, you know, when you, I don't know, have you got a, anyone who's got a smartphone or it doesn't matter if you don't? Um, in fact, it's probably better that you don't. They're, they're annoying. Um, one of the things that happened early in the days, particularly Apple and Samsung, when they brought out their, their phones, and everyone started developing these little applications, things that you could download, put on your phone, and make your life better. And, and they, there was this bit of a scheme going on because people would say, hey, unlike everybody else who's going to charge you $1.90 or something for, my app, for your app, my app's free. And... Um, who doesn't like free stuff? So I was like, I'm gonna, I want it the free one, right? But it's not really free. It's free until they put about 30 ads every time you try to do something with it. And then you get really annoyed at having to watch all the ads and they say, listen, if you don't want to look at the ads, just pay $1.90 and we'll take the ads out. So you have to sort of upgrade your free app to $1.90 to get rid of the apps. I, I like a bit of sort of amateur photography, and so there are some really cool apps on your phone to be able to utilise the really good cameras that are on these uh, phones these days. And I saw some good apps for, for um, filters and things to be able to do with your photos, sort of pre-editing or post-editing, and I thought, great. There's a free one. I'll go with the free one. And then it said, use this awesome filter. It will make your photos look like, you know, some amazing person's photo. I was like, great, I'm going to use that filter. Oh, sorry, that filter costs. You know, you've got to buy the pro pack to get that filter. So the app's free, but you've got to upgrade it, right, to get the features that you want. 
And there are so many things that are like that, right? Um, a free subscription. But if you really want the good programs that come, well, you've got to pay for that bit, all right? A free subscription. But if you want it to be in high definition, well, you're going to have to pay a bit extra for that one. And maybe we can put up with that with apps. But it becomes a problem when we start to think about our, our walk with Jesus a bit like that. When we sort of think, you know what, I can live this life and I can just sort of add on a bit of Jesus. I can upgrade it to a Jesus model if I need to. In fact, when we're reading through the book of Colossians, which we've been doing as a church for the last little while now, in a large way, that's what Paul's arguing against. A, a, a church, a group of people who had been living their life and they're being told by other people, listen, if you really want to live a good Christian life, if you really want to live this life at the next level, this is how you option it up. And what Paul does, Paul writes them a letter and he says, guys, you don't option up anything. It's all about Jesus. In fact, if you have him, it's the complete package. So I want you to grab your Bibles. We're going to read from chapter 2. We're going to do a big chunk today because we've sort of been going pretty slowly up until now. But Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 6, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter. But we need to ask God's help as we read his word. So let's do that and then read together. Lord, we're again about to pause in the busyness of our life, the the activity of our life, the agendas of our life, and, and here we are now, and Lord, we're asking, will you speak to us? You've revealed yourself to us through your word, but Lord, will you give us ears to hear what you're saying this morning to us? Will you take these words that were written more than 2,000 years ago and allow them to find root in our hearts for the life that we're living today? We want to be more like Jesus, and we want to honor him with our life. And so, Lord, teach us, we pray. Amen. Okay, you got it? Colossians chapter 2, starting from verse 6. What I'm going to get you to do as we read this through, I'm going to try and emphasize that, um, but it would be great if you're an underlining person or if you, if you don't like writing in your Bible and you write notes in a, um, in a, on a piece of paper or something, um, I want you to try and note every time that we get to the phrase in him, in him, or with him, okay? Because you'll notice there's quite a few of those, and we'll come back and think about why that's the case soon. So in him or with him, it's pretty significant. Colossians chapter 2, starting from verse 6, I'm reading from the ESV. Therefore... As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raises him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're being used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and ascetism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Pretty long reading, right? It's God's word, but what we're going to try and do is make a couple of observations about it. You might have noticed there were a bunch of in-hymns, with-hymns. If you forget lots of other things about this morning, I would really love for you to walk away and just think, what, what Paul was calling the Colossians to do, what, what Paul's calling us to think about, is that Jesus isn't an add-on. Jesus isn't an upgrade to our life. We can't just sort of live our life through this world and think, well, you know what? If I add a bit of Jesus, that's going to make it better. Paul's actually asking us to rethink that whole model. He says Jesus isn't a subscription model. Jesus is something that you are adopted into. You, you're embraced into. You're absorbed into. You live in him. You are with him. 100%. That's what he's calling the Colossians to do. That's what he's calling us to do. So I want you to go back, and we're going to sort of break this down into a couple of big chunks and sort of see how it goes together, and we'll try and um, explain maybe a couple of those sort of words that we're not so used to along the way. I want you to notice that when Paul starts, he's, I've sort of tried to give us a few um, images this morning, so we'll start with hands, all right? The hands. This is, this is about the hands of the gospel. He's saying here, at the beginning of this text, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he's saying, look, don't be influenced 
Um, don't be influenced by those who emphasize worldly patterns of behavior. You'll see that um, from verse 8 onwards. He's, don't be influenced by those who emphasize the worldly patterns of behavior and thought that you're going to embrace and find out and engage with in this world. So you're going to see here that there's a couple of things that Paul says, this is what I want you to do. All right, This is what I want you to do. Now, if you've been here for a long time, you'll have heard me say on numerous occasions, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not about what we do, but it's about what Jesus has done. And that's true. We're going to, in fact, see that this is where Paul is going to drive us to, what Jesus has done for us. But there is still an expectation for us to live in this world in a certain way. And Paul doesn't want us to get caught up in um, being influenced or being, um, giving our lives to the wrong types of things. So let's go back to verse 6. And he's going to sort of outline in just two verses what I think is basically the, the main command. The main thing that Paul says, this is what I want you to do. And then he's going to explain how we should do that. Okay? So let's, let's read it. Chapter 2, verse 6 again, just to refresh our mind. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. All right? That's a command. As you received Jesus as Lord, that's how I want you to walk in him. Now, he gives that a bit of explanation in verse 7. He says it needs to be rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He's giving us a little bit of a summary statement. This is what it looks like when you're walking in Jesus. This is what it looks like when you've said, Jesus is my everything, and I'm going to walk with him. But he asks us to consider... How did you receive Jesus? How did you receive him? And you think, well, um, one way to answer that question would be, I, I really got his attention. I said to myself, I'm going to be such a good person. I'm going to overcome my bad habits. I'm going to stop being nasty to people. I'm going to stop being self-centered. And I'm going to be such a self-controlled, good person that Jesus is going to look over everyone and just sort of go, wow, look at that girl. Look at that guy. But that's not how you receive Jesus. In fact, if we, if we tried that, most of us have probably found that we're frustrated because of just how difficult that is. Just how much we fail with that. And I'm only talking about a single 24-hour period of time we can have all the good intentions in the world paul says that's not how you receive jesus how did you receive jesus that might be a great conversation to have over a cup of tea or maybe if you meet up with a few people during the week at a study group or a accountability group or you meet a friend for coffee why don't you ask them how did you receive jesus Tell me your story. I love to hear people's stories about how they received Jesus, about how they met Jesus, what were the circumstances in their life. Now, one of the things, if, you, if, if a person who's met Jesus, let me tell you a common theme that comes up in every story. 
I don't deserve him. He's so good to me. I, I let him down. I feel like I let him down so much. I feel like he met me in the gutter. I feel like he met me in a place where I was filled with pride, wherever it might have been. There's this continual theme amongst people who have met Jesus, and they say, Jesus is so good to me, better than I deserve. And it's because we receive Jesus through his grace. We receive Jesus by faith, where we didn't earn it, where we didn't say, I deserve this. I deserve to be saved. Paul says, no. As you received Jesus, by his grace, through faith, as you received him, that's the way you continue to walk with him. Some of us have fallen into the trap, I think, if you've been a Christian for a while, I know I have certainly, in thinking, yes, I know, I know that I received Jesus by grace and through faith, I, I know that, but now that I'm a Christian, well, really, I grow by doing good things and I grow by, by making Jesus proud of me all the time by how good I am. And that's exhausting. It's exhausting. Paul's encouraging you that day that you met Jesus, if you know him this, here this morning, if you're thinking back to that time when you met Jesus and you think, he met me at my worst. He met me when I was desperate. He met me like a prodigal son who was in a far-off land who finally sat down in the mud and just said, what am I doing? What am I need? I need to return home. As you received him there, Paul says, just keep walking like that with him. Just keep walking every day like that. Keep walking with a sense of just going, man, I don't, know what, I don't know what Jesus sees in me, but I'm so glad that he's walking with me. I don't know what it is that, that I can offer, but I'm so glad that he's called me to follow him. I don't know what it is that, that makes me special, and, and Jesus says, I make you special. As you received Jesus, as you received Christ Jesus, Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, not in me established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving have you ever considered the fact that your salvation robbed you of everything except thanksgiving you ever considered the fact that your salvation says you know what you have nothing on in your possession that you can bring up to the table here and say look there's the cup and there's the bread and there's my gifts and there's my skills and there's my abilities everything that Jesus has done has robbed us of all those things and all we have left is simply to come to the table and say thank you God that's why he says we should be people who are abounding in thanksgiving the most thankful people in the entire world should be Christians that's our call. That's the call of the gospel. Continue as you began in Christ. All right. How do we do that? I mean, that's easy to talk about, right? Easy to say, okay, Chris, I heard that. I became a Christian because I, I had faith in Jesus. I simply accepted him for his word. I accepted that he's done everything for me. And I said, I don't understand it, but I receive it and I accept it. And his grace saved me. And now I'm going to walk like that every day. Great. How do I do that? Well, thankfully, I think Paul gives us a bit of insight into doing that. So the call of the gospel continue as you began, leads to now what we started with and before saying, hey, what are the hands of the gospel? What are the things that we can do? 
What are the things that we can do? So let's have a look. You can see it in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. There's something that you can do. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. These, these are according to human tradition. They're according to the elemental spirits of the world. They're not according to Christ. There's the first thing that Paul says you can do. You can you cannot be influenced. You cannot allow yourself to be influenced by those who emphasize worldly patterns of behaviors and thought. That's what that means. See to it that no one takes you captive. I'm not sure if you've ever been through an experience in your life. Um, I hope, I hope there's no one in this room who's ever physically been locked up in a cage somewhere and been captive. All right? It would be unusual in our society but it still happens but but you all know that you don't have to be behind iron bars to be held captive right yeah you you know that there are patterns of behavior you know that there are relationships you know that there are ways of viewing this world values that can be just as strong as iron bars and handcuffs. There are, there are patterns of behavior and there are um, ways of viewing the world around you that can keep you chained and keep you locked up and keep you captive for years. Sometimes not even knowing it. Other times you do and you think, I don't know how to break out of this. And we heard a bit about the cap money course before, certainly. One way that that can happen is that if I start to engage with the world around me where I think money is there to serve my needs and that in fact my sense of identity is tied very closely to the amount of money that I have, that, that's, that's a way of living in this world where you're captive. Where the amount of money that I have in my bank account is tied too closely how I think about myself as a human being. Am I worthwhile? Well, I don't have much in the bank account today. That must mean that I'm a failure. That must mean that I'm, I'm, I have no worth. Or I have millions of dollars in my investment accounts. That must mean I'm really important and that I must be a great person. They're bars. That's living in captivity. And there are thousands of people, millions of people chain to that way of thinking see that's that's a philosophy that's empty deceit paul says he says make sure no one takes you captive by that i mean how do we test how do we test a way of viewing the world as to whether or not it's empty deceit or sort of um, a philosophy that's damaging to us well paul says at the end of verse 8 you can, you can test any of those things as to whether they accord with Christ. I mean, does this line up with who Jesus is? Is this a way that I can test anything that I do in life, anything that someone says to me, hey, I want you to engage with this, I want you to pursue this, this is what's important to you, then Paul says, hey, you've got to be really cautious. You've got to be really careful. You've got to bring it back and line it up and say, is, is this in accordance with Christ? Is, does this remind me of something that Jesus would say? 
Is this the way that I viewed him as he lived his life in this world? And if it's not, Paul says, don't get caught up in it. Be aware. This is something that you can do. You can ensure that no one takes you captive. And if you think that as a Christian you're immune from this, then we're not. We're certainly not. This is written to Christians. This is written to people who are followers of Jesus. Just like we were, trying to do their best, working out what does it mean to follow Jesus in my world? What does it mean to follow Jesus in my family and relationships and workplaces? Paul is saying, hey, listen, keep your eyes open. There are empty deceits all around you and they will take you captive. You will embrace them unless you test them against Christ and say, is this who Jesus is like? So see to it that no one takes you captive. There's a few more in this passage. We're going to have to skip down to verse 16 to find the next one. Here's another command that Paul gives. Here's something that you can do in your Christian walk. All right. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, maybe this is not something that you'll engage with heaps in our world, certainly did in the Colossian world when they were living amongst pagan rituals of um, sacrifice to false gods and what foods were might maybe sacrificed on the idol and, and which ones weren't. And it seems that the Colossians had people there sort of saying, oh no, you can't eat that food. That one had been offered off to an idol. If you eat that food, you're going to be a very poor Christian. Paul actually says, verse 16, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Now, of course, I don't think he means that anytime someone starts to say, hey, I'm not sure that you, you sort of go, don't judge me. You know? um, I, I think it's more concerned about how we let other people's judgments affect us. When, when someone says, um, you know, well, I'm not sure that you're a very good Christian because you don't sort of follow the rules that I've set up and you might sort of have to just sort of say, well, hey, look, I appreciate you know, your input on that. Um, let me take that into consideration. Whatever it is that we need to say. But, but what Paul is saying here is, listen, your self-worth as a follower of Jesus is not made up by other people's opinions about whether or not you follow their rules or not. Now, we've got to be careful, of course. There's a, there is a godly and right place for a brother or sister to come alongside of us and put, out, put their hand on our shoulder and just sort of say, hey, I want to chat with you about something in your life that concerns me. Now, this is where discernment for us takes place. We don't just openly accept everything that someone says and reject all of it. Neither do we just openly accept everything that someone says and just embrace all of it. Our heart is in tune with what accords to Christ. What is it that lines up with the truth of God's word? Whatever it is that someone says to us. And the power is not in their words, but the power is in God, who has brought us by grace. So this is something that we can do, right? We cannot let someone pass judgment on us in questions of food and drink or regards to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths or whether you're a vegan or a meat eater or whatever it might be 
Paul says, verse 17, though, the real test is that these are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The real things that matter belong to Christ and not these other things around the outside. There's another thing that we can do. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on ascetism. Let's just um, explain that word for a moment. Really simply, beating yourself up. Now, here, he's actually talking about beating yourself up physically. I was once travelling through South America and um, travelling over the central Andes ranges and I found on a, a, a hilltop, high, rocky hilltop, a big statue of Jesus at a huge sort of um, cross being built on top of this high, rocky outcrop. It was really steep, very rugged. My initial thoughts were, wow, how, how amazing to have a, an, an emblem of Jesus, a picture of the cross standing over this valley with all the towns that were there. But the missionary I was travelling with, he, he was looked all of a sudden very sad and he said, it's not so special, Chris, I wish it was. He said, probably twice a year there's a pilgrimage of all these different towns and he said, all the followers that hold and look to that cross and look to that image of Jesus, they got on their hands and knees and they crawl their way up that rocky mountain and they have rope with bits of stone tied into it and they flick it over their shoulders and they beat themselves. And by the time they've reached the pinnacle, if they do, they are bruised and battered and bleeding and many don't even make it up to the top of that hill. I said, why? He said, they're trying to prove to Jesus how dedicated they are. They're trying to prove to Jesus and to everybody else, look how committed I am. That's ascetism. That's what Paul says about ascetism. And he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetism and worship of angels going on in details about visions. There are people out there who will say, listen, your Christianity is second rate because you're not, so, you're not disciplined enough or you haven't had an experience of a vision of some angel or you haven't had an experience of, of some sort of um, um, puffed up, he says, sensuous mind about some vision. Paul says, if you have Jesus, you have enough. He's enough. And you don't have to prove yourself to him by making yourself bleed because he's already proven himself by making himself bleed. We don't have to. It's by his blood and his stripes that we're healed. Not how self-disciplined you are or how committed to the cause you are enough that you would beat yourself physically, but more often than not, How much do we beat ourselves up emotionally? How much do we sit at home in depressed states of just thinking, I'm such a terrible Christian, I'm just not committed enough, I just can't do this, I just need to prove myself, I just need to work harder, I just... And Jesus is saying, it's done. It's done, the price has been paid. Come in faith, rest on my grace. Now, maybe you could read those verses in... 
verse 16, let no one disqualify you. You might think, really, can I be disqualified? Can I, can I somehow, this walk with Jesus, can I be disqualified? Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. That's not what Paul means. It's not that you can be disqualified, it's that other people stand there and say, hey, you're disqualified. You know, the judge that stands on the side of the race, you ever watch the Olympic Games? Competitive walking. I don't understand that. I mean, I walk to the fridge. Sometimes there's competitive walking amongst my kids when I see them going to get something, I say, don't run. And they competitively walk. It's on the verge of running, but not quite. And there are judges lined up. There's special rules about competitive walking in the Olympics. I think you must always have, I don't know what it is, something, one foot on the ground at all times. You a competitive walker? No? <laughs> you have to have one foot on the, on the ground at all times. There can never be a point in time when both your feet are off the ground. That's called jumping or running. Okay? There are judges lined up and down the course of the competitive walking event and they're just there to look at people's feet and ready to go, you're disqualified, right? That's what Paul's talking about. He's saying, don't let someone stand there and say, hey, you're disqualified because you haven't beat yourself up enough. You haven't pushed yourself hard enough. They're things that we can do. But there's something really significant in this passage. Not about what we can do, but what Jesus has already done that allows us to live this type of life. That gives us the confidence to be able to say, listen, I hear your judgment, I hear your calls for disqualification, but I ignore them all because I know what Jesus has done for me. And it's found in verse 9. Grab your Bibles, go back to verse 9. This is the heart of the gospel. We've had the call of the gospel, the mouth call of the gospel. We've had the hands of the gospel. This is something you can do. But here's the heart of the gospel. This is the, this is the middle bit. This is the, well, this is the guts of it. This is the bit that really drives everything else where we allow the truth of the gospel to take root in our hearts and begin to work itself out into the actions of our life. Let's just remind ourselves about what Paul says. He's just been saying, listen, don't, don't let anyone take you captive. Don't let anyone um, trick you up with empty deceit. Verse 9, for why, this is the reason why, for in him, speaking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity, all of God, everything that you can think of, everything that you can learn about, everything that you could observe about God, Paul says all of that, it all dwells in Jesus. <clears throat> when, when we look at Jesus, we're able to hear his voice when he says, hey, listen, why, why are you guys asking me to see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There is no way for you to get to the Father but by me. 
That's Jesus saying what Paul's saying here. Listen, all of God's fullness, all of his deity, everything that makes him God, it's all in Jesus. You think, well, so what? Well, look what he else says. He says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. God in all his fullness is in Jesus. And Paul says, and Jesus in all his fullness is in you. Everything that God is, it's not you that's God, but it's God. And he says, I've come down and I'm making my tabernacle with you. I'm making my home with you. I'm making my dwelling place with you. For in him, the, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule. He's the head of all authority. You've had this old life cut away, and that's that whole talk in verse 11 about circumcision. It's difficult to talk about that subject and keep it reasonably PG. But basically what Paul's saying, in the Jewish context, circumcision was a, a, a physical symbol on a part of the body that signified cutting away old flesh and it said, you are God's covenant people. But what Paul says is, if you are a Christian, that occurred, that happened in your heart. And it didn't happen because someone lined up with a knife. It happened because Jesus absorbed you into himself and he said, I take you to be mine. And you were buried with him in baptism and you rose to life again with him because of the power of God. And that, Paul says, is spiritual circumcision. You've been marked. You have God's symbol on you. And it says, you're mine. You're mine. And I'm in you. And everything that God is, is with you. That's your sense of confidence. That's your sense of hope. Not that you've lived up to some other person's expectation. Not because you lived up to your own little list of rules to say, this is what a religious person must do, so I'm going to do that every day. No. Paul says, listen, you can be confident the heart of the gospel is, is that God brought you into himself and says, you're mine. And he marked you. We're alive in him. Our confidence is in him. Verse 12 says, you've been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And we who were dead, right? We who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, God made alive together with him. So our confidence in saying, listen, as I receive Jesus, so I walk in him, wasn't and isn't about saying, listen, I deserve this, I chose this, I made it all happen. It's no, you were dead. And God raised you from the dead in Christ. And God has lifted you up. And God has given you a hope in a future. And that's how you received him. And he says, so walk like that. Walk like that every day. Walk in that confidence to be able to say, listen, yeah, there's this empty deceit. I can hear the calls of the world saying, engage in this. Think about yourself in such and such a way. I'm going to reject that. I'm in Christ. I don't need that. And when someone comes along and says, I pass judgment on you. I pass disqualification on you because you aren't living up to the expectation that I place, you can say, well, thank you very much for your opinion, but I'm in Christ. 
I've been marked by him. He's mine, and I'm his, and that's my confidence. That's your confidence. I want you to finish by thinking about this. You who are dead, this is verse 13, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Forgiven us all our trespasses. And look what he did. He cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Your life up until you met Jesus was one long accumulation of a debt. Years and years ago, Brad, I don't know if you knew this, I used to work for CAP a long time ago, worked in their headquarters, Christians Against Poverty, and we met people, I spoke with people out in the, their homes or whatever, and they told their story about the slow accumulation of debt. And anyone here that's experienced debt, significant debt in their life, they know how much it can sneak up on you, right? And how much we get desperate and how much we pay off one credit card with another credit card then max that one out and get another credit card and pay that one off and then some loan shark people ring you up and say, hey, listen, absorb all your debt into this and we'll just look after you and then all of a sudden you're in, you're in way, way over your head and you can just felt cat caught and trapped and desperate there are many people who feel like that. Well, in something far more significant than money, our sin was doing the same thing to us. And we were trying to buy it off in all sorts of different ways, but we were just getting further and further and further behind and deeper and deeper and deeper. And Jesus steps in and he says, I cancel the record of debt. I cancel it. It stood against you with its legal demands, and this is what God did with it. He took that record of debt and he nailed it to the cross as Jesus hung there paying for our sin. And when he did that, he disarmed, verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. You know the shame that we often feel in our failure and the shame that we often feel in our sin and we think, I hope no one ever finds out about this. I want to keep it a secret for the rest of my life. All that shame Jesus absorbed and then he threw it against those that would stand against us and he put them to open shame and Jesus triumphed over them in the cross. And he did that for you. And he did that for us. That's the heart of the gospel. So... As you received Jesus, so walk in him. As you receive Jesus where his grace is enough and faith is all that's required, a simple call of the heart to say, I receive Jesus what you have done for me. All that debt, all that sin, all that shame gets thrown against our enemies and he triumphs over them in the cross and we stand, not perfect by any means, still humble, still struggling, still, still lowly, but confidently, as I received him, I walk in him today, and I stand there and I say, no. No, I can see what the world's trying to do. I can see that judgment. I can see that disqualification. I don't receive any of it. I only hold to what Jesus has done in me. Is that enough? You bet it is. Let's pray. Lord, what a gracious God you are to us.
that in Christ you saw me in my sin and you took me dead as I was and you raised me to life and you gave me hope and a future and a purpose. And Lord, any here today who have called on you, you've done the same for them. And maybe there's someone here today that, that wonders what I'm talking about, that still feels trapped, that still feels like they've got nothing solid beneath their feet. Lord, we thank you that, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you that you have come to look for those who feel like they're not worthy and that you will embrace and draw to yourself, Lord. Lord, give us courage that as we received you to walk in you, to have the confidence to know that your grace is sufficient, that faith overcomes, that shame was dealt with, that sin was put away. Give us eyes to see the deceptions that we sometimes embrace and help us just to rest against the finished work of the cross, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.